This podcast was recorded on the ancestral lands on Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. This is Humans on Rights, a podcast advocating for the education of human rights. Here's your host, Stuart Murray. Migrant rights, workers' conditions. You know, one of the things I've tried to accomplish with this Humans on Rights podcast is to find out what's happening at grassroots levels on various human rights issues. And my guest today, Diwa Marcelino, is somebody that I don't know, but I'm going to get to know, and I look forward to this conversation. I met Diwa through an email transfer by uh, one of the people that I had interviewed on another one of my podcasts, Judith Oviason, who is a tremendous grassroots organizer. And so I was given this introduction, and I just want to say a couple of quick words, Diwa, that uh, are on your bio, just so people can get a sense of a little bit of who you are, and then I'll turn this over to you. But Diwa Marcelino is a community organizer with Migrante Manitoba, and that is a grassroots organization advancing the rights and the welfare of overseas Filipinos with the framework of people's struggle for democracy, justice, and peace in the Philippines. There's more. Migrante Manitoba is a founding member of Healthcare for All Manitobans, an alliance of advocating for expanded public health, healthcare coverage to include all residents of Manitoba, regardless of status. He's involved in Community Solidarity Manitoba. He's the vice chairperson of the Council of Canadians, which is a grassroots organization challenging corporate power and advocating for people, the planet, and our democracy. He's on the steering committee of Kairos, which is an ecumenical organization promoting ecological justice and human rights. So lots of background there, Diwa. I'm thrilled and delighted you take a moment to, to chat with me. So first and foremost, Welcome to Humans on Rights. Thanks for having me here, Sue. Diwa, tell me a little bit about your your background, your education. You you you're obviously very interested in in a lot of advocacy. How is it that you came to be interested in, and what what's your background that got you sort of into that area? When I was uh, about sixteen years old, and and I was a, a high school student in Manitoba, there was a Filipino organization called Kampi K A. MPI, which is a Filipino acronym, which roughly translates to Filipino Workers Movement in Manitoba. And I saw the plight of different workers, the different conditions that they were facing, the racism that they were fighting against, and that really inspired me. Uh, but I really started my activism in earnest when I moved to Toronto to go to university and to go to post-secondary studies. And I saw the plight of migrant workers right away. In, in big cities in Canada, like Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, you'll see that there are many live-in caregivers. The vast majority of them are Filipino or Filipinos. And I saw the many issues that they were facing, including uh, extreme exploitation, family separation, you know, everything from wage theft to unjust firings. So that really got me involved. Uh, my education actually has has very little to do with my activism. I, I, I started in computer science at the University of Manitoba. I went on to study 
the Fry College of Canada in Mississauga, then, then to Ryerson University, which is now uh, TMU, Toronto Metropolitan University. And I'm, I work now as a power engineer. So my job and my activism, although separate, I've used my day job to pay for, or in this case, sometimes nights, I work nights, to help me do my grassroots activism. So do you want, what, is there a reason again on your professional side that uh, you talk about going to Toronto to study there? Is it because you were looking at sort of an, an engineering type of career that you, you ended up going there? Was there something else that drew you down to Toronto from Montreal or from uh, Winnipeg, I should say? I had a sibling, an older sibling who was there. So um, I didn't put too much thought into it. It was uh, a new place to go. As fate would have it, it led me down this path of activism. But it wasn't uh, entirely, you know, fully thought out. I was uh, just turned 19. And I said, mm, let's go to Toronto. I have about uh, $300 in my checking account. I think I should go there. Sure, exactly. Foolish decision, uh, yeah. decision to go to one of the most yeah. expensive cities with that little money. But I soon found uh, a home among other activists. Actually, primarily the activism that I was involved was with actual human rights organizations dedicated to helping the Filipino activists in the Philippines who were at that time facing many disappearances, enforced disappearances, enforced killings, extrajudicial killings. That was the time of Gloria Macapagal Arroyo, which was the president that I believe she was, she was responsible for over 2,000 assassinations of activists, of students, of indigenous peoples, of, of labor rights activists. That was the, the ground in which I was uh, firmly planted on for the first couple of years because of the gross human rights abuses in the Philippines. Almost every other day, someone was assassinated. Some political parties, I imagine, would have maybe 100 or 200 of their folks uh, assassinated. So this was a, a huge deal. This was all, of course, supported by the United States. United States and, and, and countries like Canada let this happen without too much interference. Canada and the Philippines are what they say partner partner countries in ASEAN, A S E A N, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, I believe. So it's interesting that you would get so involved in something like that. You go to Toronto, I get it. You got three hundred bucks. You're looking for a good time. You think, hey, you know, Toronto's a great place to to do that. What was your first impact, or what was the first? I guess, situation, maybe Diwa, that you came across that started to bring awareness to you about this is, there's something fundamentally not right here. I remember meeting different Filipina migrant workers who were working as living caregivers. And I remember that some of them would call our organization to ask for help. It was, you know, one here, one there. After, uh, you know, a few months to several months, I realized this is not an isolated problem. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of migrant workers reporting abuse. This is the Living Caregiver Program, which is somewhat notorious. It has been revamped and rebranded as a, the Caregiver Program. It's no, call, it's no longer called the Live-In Caregiver Program because uh, they don't want to, folks to believe that they're forced to have a live-in requirement with their employer. But if you can just imagine living with your employer 24-7, this can lead to whole sorts of abuses like wage theft, working outside your time clock, you know, no privacy. It's, it's ripe for disaster if you think about it. Who wants, who wants to live with their employer? It was in this first couple of years in Toronto 
where I responded to many calls for help, uh, there was a quick response team with Migrante Ontario, and we would help folks who got themselves into situations where they felt uncomfortable with their employer, either through issues of exploitation, like sexual harassment, for instance, or being kicked out of their employer's home, which is their home, or maybe maybe trying to defend themselves or sticking up for themselves. And the employers would be, you know, all sorts of people, even folks who, you know, are our CMP officers. I remember there was a there was a woman, I said, who's your employer and why did they do this to you? And, and the employer was an RCMP officer. And I said, wow, this, this, this program is, the abuse and the exploitation is, is being produced at a systemic level. That was my first instance of, of looking at Canada's immigration system and seeing the exploitation it produces. So, Diwa, when you were in Toronto and you mentioned Grante Ontario as an organization. Did you get involved with them when you were in Toronto? Uh, yes, I did. Migrante Ontario, as well as Migrante Canada. It started, I believe, in 2010, but there were already precursor organizations that existed that later affiliated to Migrante. All the different organizations have different names. In Manitoba, the Migrante affiliate was named uh, Damayan Manitoba which means linking arms in, in Tagalog, which later is now uh, called Migrante Manitoba. So there was already organizations that had deep and rich histories of, of working with the diaspora Filipino community. And they got together in 2010 to formally call themselves under one name with one purpose to help migrant workers and also to address the root causes of forced migration stemming from the Philippines. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that forced migration for a moment, Diwa? Just give us some background to listeners to, you know, the history or the background to that. And then let's talk about some of the things that you are and your organization are actively involved in to, uh, to remedy some of those problems or try to correct some of those problems. Yeah, as you may know, like, uh, especially in Winnipeg, there are tens of thousands of, of Filipinos. Tagalog is the second most spoken language in the city, beating even French. The Philippines is a wonderful country. It's the country of my birth. It's a very rich country, very small, but rich country is rich in mineral resources. The estimated to be the third largest deposit in gold. It has a lot of copper, nickel. It has a, a, a huge population that's very well educated. It has everything going for it. But coincidentally or not, it's, it's also very poor. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of landlessness. Many workers and many farmers don't own the land that they till. And also it has a very, very strong history of forced migration, starting from Marco Sr., the dictator who started the labor export policy. When the Philippines needed foreign currency because the Marcoses were plundering the economy and needed money, they had the idea sending Filipinos out to the Middle East first. And that progressed. And the Philippines, uh, ever since the, the 70s, has been, you know, basically a state recruiter for migrant workers, pimping out their people to the highest and sometimes the lowest bidder. So that's a bit of the history about how migration is such a phenomenon in the Philippines. It's a state policy that was enacted by Marcos Sr. And I say Marcos Sr. because his son, Bong Bong Marcos has the same name as him. Ferdinand Bong Bong Marcos is his nickname, Bong Bong. He came into power after their family dynasty and legacy was rebranded. They were initially kicked out in 1986 
because of all the corruption and the killings and the dissatisfaction of the people because of the, the poor economy. But uh, due to, you know, I would say a strong and grassroots and well-funded social media machinery, they've been able to revamp their image, try to convince folks that the time that, uh, that they had in power uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s were a golden era in the Philippines, which it was, you know, it was clearly not. And so that's a bit of the history, Diwa. Thank you for sharing that with us. And again, um, you know, the, the the notion, the, you know, Amelda Marcos, I mean, the, the, the number of just horrific things that went on uh, that were that not the stuff that was made public, if I could say it that way, the stuff that was not made public, I'm sure was even more horrific in the background. So I appreciate taking a moment to share that with us. Thank you so much. What Diwa has Migrante Canada and the subsequent other organizations done to help correct that and to bring a sense of, well, dignity and human rights to what any migrant should be receiving when they come to a country? What are some of the things that you're doing and maybe what are the challenges you're seeing? And and I'd also like to see, I, I, I presume there's successes also, there must be. There's a lot of success stories, equal if more number of sub stories as well. But I'm really happy to be part of an organization like Migrante. We're not just here to fight for the rights and welfare of migrant workers. What I really like about our organization and organizations is that we're here to empower workers. So we want to build that collective power among the workers instead of treating them like clients. When we organize workers, we do so with the full and express purpose of lifting them up, learning from them, and also learning from us as a two-way exchange and trying to build up different groups of folks, whether they be in a workplace, building a, a little migrant group in a workplace or a city or a town or um, a different organization where folks want to help their own, uh, own folks. We want to empower people to fight for their rights and also to look to the root causes of forced migration in the Philippines. So we also want to fight for the situation in the Philippines. We, we can solve every single person's problem comes to Canada from the Philippines, set them up and give them whatever they want, if that even is impossible. But that won't solve the problem of the millions and millions of folks who leave the country. About 6,000 Filipinos leave the country every single day wow. uh, for a chance for a better life. So this, this, this forced migration, this labor export policy, it's really a uh, well-oiled machine. And if we, don't, uh, if we don't stop the root causes of that forced migration, it doesn't matter what we do on the rights and welfare side and helping folks with their daily needs, which we still do. It will, it will never solve the problems of the Philippines, the, the economic disparities, the terrible corruption. Uh, and I, I know folks uh, maybe have heard of Duterte, Rodrigo Duterte, the, the former president. He's being investigated by the ICC, the International Criminal Court, it's estimated that uh, at some estimates, he has murdered over 30,000 Filipinos extrajudiciously in his uh, war, so-called war on drugs. And during, during the pandemic, which he was still in charge, the Philippines had the most severe quarantine of all the countries in the world. Many folks who were actual adherents or supporters of Duterte really lost faith in him because during the pandemic, the Philippines had no vaccines or very little except for the rich, for the rich who had access to them. They had no uh, social programs to ameliorate, you know, poverty or 
uh, lack of food or lack of work or lack of income. They locked down folks in their homes or wherever they were. Many people are homeless and folks went hungry. Folks lost weight. I have a member of Magrant who, who recalled the time where his family would eat maybe a simple porridge of rice and water and sugar maybe once a day for his family for weeks on end. And he himself said he lost a lot of weight because sometimes he couldn't even eat that. He, he would, he would uh, prioritize his kids. And when he went to the when he went to Canada, to Manitoba, to migrate, his old, it was also still the pandemic. So they faced hardships here. Uh, they were looking for a better life. But here, many of the workers under the Temporary Foreign Worker Program, which is many of the workers that we, um, we fight for their rights and welfare, they're in this Temporary Foreign Worker Program. They, they were not able to find other jobs. If they were, for instance, in the service industry or working in a hotel, they were maybe promised 40 hours a week. But during the pandemic, they were lucky to have 10 or 15. And this has, you know, this caused huge problems. They were still paying rent. They were still buying their own food. And they're still giving remittances to their families back home in the Philippines. So we, we saw, especially during the pandemic, the, the huge problems faced by many migrant workers. Some folks and some residents in Canada were lucky enough to be, you know, I, I would always hear on the radio and, and the news of, what do you do if you're bored during the pandemic or things like that? Or there were, there were first world problems happening during the pandemic. And there were third world problems right here in Canada with folks didn't have even enough to provide for themselves. Mm -hmm. And they weren't even eligible. Many of them for CERB, the uh, Canada, yeah. Canada emergency yeah. Yeah. relief benefit or something yeah. like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, we saw right away. And that's why the migrant did different partner organizations launched launched a program to help folks and provide for the basic needs for for about a year or two two years during the pandemic we were providing groceries to many migrant workers around Manitoba wow so i mean you know th there's a lot to kind of as they say unpack here do you uh, but just if we could look at from a, a sort of a global perspective because you talked about this whole process being systemic so it's, it is obviously global in its perspective. If you were able to give the Prime Minister of Canada, and I'm not trying to sort of be political, I'm just saying the Prime Minister could be whatever party, but if you were able to give the Prime Minister of Canada some advice on what's happening with respect to some of these migrant workers and the incredible and horrific situations that they get put into when they come into Canada, I'm not looking for a quick fix, Diwa. I mean, it never is. And I don't mean to sort of just try and brush through it. But would you have some ideas about how you might, from a policy standpoint or from an operational standpoint, how you might give advice to somebody who's in a position, a decision-making decision to, to try to make this a better situation? Thanks for that. A great question. And this is not even a hypothetical question. Every couple of years, the Temporary Foreign Worker Program and even the Living Caregiver Program go under a review process in Canada's parliament. And for decades, advocates have written submissions, academics have written reports, opposition parties have you know, written minority reports and submitted to the government all the different problems in this Temporary Foreign Worker Program or the Living Caregiver Program or the Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program, which mainly receives migrant workers from Mexico and the Caribbean. All of these, these deficiencies in this program, if you will, 
are well documented and people have been advocating for them for years. Uh, so it's not a hypothetical question. We've, we've, we've submitted these requests, these, these, these stories to the government untold times. But if I had the ear of the prime minister, I would first say treat workers, migrant workers, treat folks with dignity. Justin Trudeau and his family employ a couple of Filipino nannies. They are part of the system that brings workers here and to leverage their their reproductive care work or leverage their their labor to help the economy, to help the families of Canada at the detriment to obviously the families back home who are separated from them. So first and foremost, we, we need to take a look at the unjust laws that allow migrant workers to come to Canada with a precarious status, which leads to exploitation. If they had, for instance, status upon arrival, or they had full rights like healthcare, they had full labor rights in Ontario. Some migrant workers are not even allowed to start a union. It's illegal. You know, the rights that we've had for hundreds of years, migrant workers still don't have many of them. Uh, and that's a, that's a travesty. That's a shame for a, a so-called democracy like Canada mm-hmm. to have mm-hmm. folks not even enjoy certain rights that many Canadians and residents have enjoyed for, you know, a century or so. So that's the first part is to, to give full rights to the workers here from other countries. From the global's perspective that like you mentioned, and I mentioned before, Canada, Canadian industries take full advantage of countries like the Philippines. The Philippines, uh, I believe, I believe 90 plus percent of their land mass, which is not, not a lot of land mass. You can fit the, the Philippine a couple times over in Manitoba in terms of the land mass. But the Philippines, over 90% of the area has um, mining applications. And Canadian mining around the world is one of the most exploitative industries around. And Canadian mines operate with impunity in the Philippines and elsewhere. Canadian mines wreak industrial, environmental damage in countries like the Philippines. And they leave country, leaving a huge mess. Barrick Gold Mine in the Philippines was called Placer Dome, I believe. And Barrick Gold bought that out. It's a prime example of a mine that failed, the tailing ponds failed, and a lot of toxic waste fell into the river systems and the land, and the company just packed up and left. And these are Canadian companies, and not just mining. Canada contributes to the, the disasters in the Philippines, disasters plural in the Philippines, because they support despotic governments. During Duterte's uh, presidency, Canada almost sent attack helicopters to the Philippines. If it was not for the uh, the protests of many organizations in, in Canada, Canada was considering to send attack helicopters to the Philippines to a president who uh, is on record and went on the media saying that he wants to bomb indigenous schools in the Philippines for teaching them and empowering them to fight for their rights. So Canada is is unfortunately implicated in the human rights abuses in the Philippines, whether they be through the unjust mining practices and the unregulated mining industry of, the, of Canada, its economic, its tacit economic and diplomatic support of countries and presidents like, like, like Duterte uh, or, or Marcos, who are instituting you know, terrible policies. Canada has a role to play, and right now it's playing a, its role in a way that it's, it's harming folks, not, not, not helping folks. 
it's actually supporting despotic rulers like Duterte, like Marcos, uh, who have no regard for human rights whatsoever. So do you want, when, when you talk about the fact that there's all of these reviews that go on, whether it's around temporary foreign worker program or temporary migrant worker program or seasonal, et cetera, when you have those reviews and they get presented, does it just fall on deaf ears? I mean, is there never a process to at least find out what the next steps are? Or, I mean, presumably you're, you, you know, they're asking people, they're aware of these atrocities that are taking place. And somebody's asking to see how we can correct it, or at least give advice on how it can be made better. But it seems, if I understand you correctly, that despite the number of reviews, very little, if anything, has happened. That's right. There, there has been some successes. Recruitment agencies, for instance, which is the uh, lubrication, if you will, of how migrant workers get to uh, countries like Canada, they are the ones that facilitate this migration. They are now not allowed to charge workers, you know, the thousands of dollars. I remember there was a there was an article in CBC that showed that migrant workers at Maple Leaf in Brandon, the Maple Leaf um, meatpacking facility in Brandon, some of these workers from China paid up to fifteen thousand dollars for what are minimum wage jobs. So that now is illegal thanks to many of the. Uh, advocacy and, and, and work that many organizations, uh, not just Migrante, but many organizations uh, fought for. But the, the, main, the main tenets of the program, which is a, a precarious labor force that's being controlled by a work permit that's specific only to one employer, this, this leads to, to great exploitation. If you're only allowed to work for one employer, you can't tell your boss, hey, I don't like how you're treating me, I'm going to somewhere else. That can't happen, and it doesn't really happen because workers will be faced with having not be able to work for maybe months at a time while they wait for their new paperwork to work for another employer. Without having a, a new work permit, workers are forced to, to wait on a job, wait on paperwork, and they're not eligible usually for EI. They, they may not have much savings. It's, it's a very bad position, and it's something that's very disgraceful that we allow workers we put in such a, a disadvantaged uh, position where employers have huge leverage over their employees. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, yeah, very difficult the way you describe it for sure, Diwa. And I, I think you know organizations that you're involved in, like uh, Migrante Manitoba. How do you function as an organization? I know what your mandate is, and you're obviously doing good work. But like, how are you funded? How do you ensure that what you're trying to do is is achieving the goals that uh, you're you're fighting for. Many of us are, you know, full-time workers or even more have multiple jobs. So we do this, we are evening and weekend warriors. On the weekends we we do outreach in the different towns in, in Manitoba like Steinbach, Nipawa, Brandon, Carmen. We are on call 24/7 basically. During the pandemic I mentioned before that we were giving out groceries. We did avail of some government funding for the first time to help migrant workers. We applied for some funds and we were able to translate that into real hard support for workers. You know, bags of rice, canned meat, vegetables and fruits. So we did uh, during the pandemic get some funding from the government to help these workers because they were not 
eligible for other supports like serve or things like that. We are mostly grassroots or we are, you know, we are grassroots. Right. Usually we are not funded. So this is off our the backs of our own members. We charge $5 a year for our members. Most of our members are temporary foreign workers themselves. But we find our power, not just in our funding, because we don't have that much, but in our collective, collective work that we do, the amounts of connections that we have with different folks, with different agencies, with academics, with organizations, and the migrant workers themselves. Uh, the fact that we have such a huge base of migrant workers really helps us, you know, understand very intimately what they're going through. You know, we understand, you know, during, you know, hard, hard times, workers, you know, in, in Manitoba and elsewhere in Canada are only eating rice and maybe rice and eggs or rice and salt uh, during the pandemic. Workers didn't have enough to, to pay for their rent and things like that. We have such a connection with workers because we are workers. Our organizations are right. a price of workers. Right. Yeah. So that's where our power lies. And that's where our, our so-called funding is from. It's from yeah. the, the workers themselves and the yeah. energy and the, um, the inspiration and the passion that they want to fix not only their lives, their own lives, their family lives, but the lives of other workers like them. And Diwa is, is getting, you know, part of the education of these of these situations is people get into, you know, maybe they're a temporary foreign worker. They're in a position where there's an abuse going on. Something's happening. How do you let people know? I mean, as you say, you're workers, so it's worker to worker really in terms of grassroots and, and the education of this, letting people know that there is help. There's places that you can go that you can reach out to, because I think part of it is that you, you know, you would feel so helpless because you came over here with this dream of having an opportunity that just gets completely uh, washed out. Fortunately, and maybe unfortunately, there are not many organizations helping migrant workers. I just got a uh, an emergency text at 1 p.m. today about a worker who's, I think, stuck at the airport because their paperwork was not properly uh, done and they're subject to deportation. This came by contact who we previously helped in the PAW. So again, fortunately or unfortunately, there are not many people helping workers. So if you ask around, eventually leads to Migrante, even politicians, constituency offices, and other organizations will refer their clients to us or their or, or folks who complain to them or ask for help. They refer them to us. So we receive a lot of the calls, a lot of the text messages, a lot of the emails from workers who have nowhere else to go. So again, even the way that we receive our, our different contacts is through grassroots means and through word of mouth. We do have, you know, social media accounts and things like that. But by far, many of the workers uh, ask for help and agencies and organizations and even politicians themselves uh, will call on the grant to, to, to help workers because uh, the problems that they face don't have really quick answers. Yeah. So do you, uh, just on that, I, you know, one of the things I like to try to do if I can on this uh, on this humans on rights podcast is if there's a place to go to get more information if somebody's listening to this and saying you know how can i help how can i get more informed how can i be educated or become an advocate where would you recommend that they go please go to our website migrante that's m-i-g-r-a-n-t-e dot c-a look us up on facebook migrante manitoba our numbers there you can leave a message you can, you can talk to your trusted organizations or agencies if they can help. Uh, they might also have some resources for you or forward, 
forward your issues to us. If you contact us, we'll do our best not to just help you out in your situation, but to try to empower you to really take charge of your own your own predicament and try to fight for your own rights. And maybe in doing so, help educate other workers in in their workplaces as well. So just, you know, Diwa, when you talk about so many challenges and, you know, I, I, I don't want, I don't want to just sort of switch the conversation to something that's positive because there's so many struggles, but I think if somebody's listening, I mean, one of the challenges is where people say, I don't know how to help. Like it, it's such a big issue. Where can I step in? Where can I um, advocate or learn? I think sometimes when you hear of somebody and maybe if you could share something very close and personal to you that you've seen some tremendous success in, I think that helps people to say, that's a reason to be involved. I mean, there is help, there's opportunity. And I, you know, the old advocate is hope is not a great strategy. I get it. I understand that. But you have been involved in this for such a long time that, you know, creating those educated and those advocates who can be people that have come out of the other side of this. Can you just share any of your thoughts or experiences on that side of the story? There's a, there's a bunch of ways to help Stuart. My granta is sometimes very insular and we have, you know, most of our events are catered to migrant workers, but once in a while we do have forums where the general public are invited to come. I'm really hopeful that other organizations have popped up just a couple of years ago. In Vancouver, there was a launch of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. And many Filipinos and non-Filipinos joined together to advocate for human rights in the Philippines, which is one of the, you know, one of the reasons why there's so much outward migration from the Philippines is because of the lackluster human rights record of the Philippine government. So organizations like that, if, if folks want to volunteer with Migrante or folks want to help some of the more long-term or global issues that we're facing, like human rights, there are things like that. So please get involved there. there for whatever talent you have, whether it be in graphic arts or writing, folks with Migrante or human rights organizations like ICHIRP, the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines, which many of the church organizations are, are involved with. Uh, there are many uses for your talents. If you want to donate, no one's going to stop you from donating to us, but uh, really want your support and your solidarity. Okay. Well, listen, I, I appreciate that. And I, I want to just uh, touch on one thing, Diwa, before, uh, before we uh, hit the off ramp on the conversation, you're a steering committee member of Kairos. And uh, for anybody that's not aware of it, it's spelled K-A-I-R-O-S. I have some understanding of that because of the blanket program, Diwa. But uh, just talk, tell us a little bit about um, why you got involved in that and uh, the meaning that it has for you. I think that I was really attracted to to Kairos. My maternal grandfather was a United Church of Christ in the Philippines pastor, a church planter. My mother was also very involved with the, the church, and I myself was involved early on in the church. And I was particularly interested in the the mission part of the church, the part of the church that really wanted to make lives better for folks. Uh, and I, that's the part I, I really, really was attracted to. So when organizations like Kairos, who are 
fighting for indigenous and ecological justice, when they put a call out for for folks who want to help them, I, I, I quickly was really attracted to that because Carlos has been a partner not only for ecological issues, but also for migrant justice issues. They've been a big partner with that, but also human rights. I know that Kairos has sponsored many human rights tours, getting advocates from the Philippines to come to Canada, to, to even to testify and to speak to the parliament, to MPs. So I was really um, inspired to join Kairos because of their, their advocacy outwardly to, 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 to politicians, to Canadians, but also inwardly to many of its uh, member churches. Yeah, it's uh, they they did uh, incredible work through this. The, the one area that I'm aware of them, as I mentioned uh, when I introduced them uh, on this DWA, is the blanket program, which uh, is a very powerful program. And I would certainly um, recommend anybody who has not been a participant to to try to be a participant to understand some of the from an an indigenous perspective. You know what it means to be uh, basically have everything you you thought was yours just basically taken away. Have you participated in many blanket programs, Diwa? Not that many. Many of them are during work hours, right. but I, I have. And I'm, I'm really happy that there are some, even some changes that are happening to the blanket exercise. As an organization, we understand that many of our processes and our systems, you know, the church is no stranger to colonialism. We've had a very implicit and explicit part in the residential school system. And I'm really happy that, uh, that Kairos is, even with the blanket exercise that you mentioned, which has been been around for many years, we've been revamping it and really at a, at a very systemic level of trying to, to steer that process and steer that program uh, and have that uh, being led and being, um, being supported and being recreated again and again, uh, many times over by Indigenous folks. So we're in the process of even decolonializing that kind of practice ourselves. We're, we still have a long way to go. As an organization, I, I really appreciate the honesty and the transparency uh, of even understanding that we ourselves are a colonial organization of sorts, mainly built of you know white churches with many white parishioners. And so that aspect of decolonializing our, our different missions and our different programs is something that I really uh, stand behind. Yeah, and I and just uh, I I think I referred to it as a blanket program, and that was incorrect. The correct name is it is a blanket exercise. So just want to make sure that I correct my own my own language. Diwa Marcelino, thank you for finding some time to to talk to me about a lot of issues, but some things that uh, you have shed a light on, and I I thank you for taking the time to do that. I just want to just give the last word to you that if there was somebody who was listening to this that you wanted to send a message to them about some of the challenges that uh, that Migrante, Canada, Migrante, Manitoba are involved in, what would that be? Well, what I would say to folks is uh, we can sometimes feel debilitated by all the news that are happening. We've heard of the road closure on Roxham Road, how uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, the Canadian, the U.S. government with uh, Justin Trudeau and Biden have now expanded the third safe third the country safe third agreement. country yeah uh-huh. yeah which is anything but safe which makes migrants crossing in irregular checkpoints or irregular places in Canada making that harder this will force migrant workers migrants families 
to go through even more precarious uh, entry points, which will lead to more deaths, more folks losing their hands and things like that. When you hear of news like that, don't feel debilitated. There are organizations like Migrante who are fighting for migrants. There's the network that we're involved with that we've helped start up, the Migrant Rights Network, migrantrights.ca, migrante.ca. I, I mentioned the different human rights organizations that are, uh, that, are, that are around the International Coalition of Human Rights in the Philippines. There are many ways to get involved to talk about the issues facing migrants, both here uh, in countries like Canada, but also in sending countries like the Philippines, India, uh, Mexico, or the Caribbean. There are many organizations who are working at the grassroots level, at the policy level, helping folks. And if you are so inclined, join one of our organizations, attend one of our workshops, browse through our social media, our websites. Uh, and I, again, I said, as, as I said before, whatever your talent is, if it's in driving folks to folks come to a meeting, if it's uh, donating bus tickets or bus passes or donating canned foods, talking to your classroom, talking to your organization or inviting us so we can do a presentation, all those things will really help the, the, the mission and the vision of our organizations of helping workers and their human rights to stop, A, stop being exploited, but also B, work on the the original issues, the, the, the human rights issues and the economic issues that give rise to forced migration in the first place. Okay, DUR Marcelino, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Thanks for listening to Humans on Rights. A transcript of this episode is available by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Humans on Rights is recorded and hosted by Stuart Murray. Social media marketing by Buffy Davey. Music by Doug Edmond. For more, go to humanrightshub.ca. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.